Welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of Beyond Zero. I'm your host Ben. Joining me today is Paul Dalgano. Paul's a writer. His new novel, A Country of Eternal Light, is out now through Fourth Estate. And he joins me from rainy, cold, freezing Melbourne. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hi, Ben. Um, nice to be here in rainy, freezing Melbourne. <laughs> as your, as our listeners might have guessed, you're originally from Scotland. Do you want to tell us a bit about it, where you grew up and how you ended up here in rainy, cold, freezing Melbourne? So um, I I come from Aberdeen, which is Scotland's third largest city, which isn't saying much by global city standards. I think it's got about 200,000 people there, there or thereabouts. Um, If you don't know where it is on the map, it's the kind of jutty out bit in the northeast of Scotland that kind of pokes over towards Norway and um, that, that kind of area. Um, it's, um, yeah, so I, I grew up there. It's known very much and has been throughout my life as an oil city. Uh, most of Scotland's uh, and and therefore the UK's oil production happens off the, the coast of Aberdeen. Uh, and therefore, a bit like Perth and Western Australia, there's a lot of um, transient population, I guess, that come to work in the oil but also um, that, that's where local people work too. That's where you're going to make a bit of money, basically, uh, depending on your skill level. Uh, people go out and work on the rigs um, in all different kinds of professions. And yeah, that's that's uh, that's where I'm from. Uh, I also studied in Aberdeen. I went to university there. Um, and really since then, so since about um, 2001, I, I haven't lived there. Um, I've lived in various places, you know, um, in Spain, in Italy, uh, then I moved back to the UK, but lived in Edinburgh for a few years. I lived in Glasgow for eight years. And then um, eventually, yeah, I, I moved to Australia in 2010 and have been here in Melbourne ever since. So you met your wife overseas and now you've got two kids here in Australia. Do you want to tell us about like where you met your Australian wife? Yes. Yeah, so w- when I finished university, um, this is for for a kind of strange reason I ended up being in Italy um I finished university I, I did English and Hispanic studies at university and this is coming off the back of um I actually left school at 14 so um left school with no exams I was a painter and decorator's apprentice and I fixed people's washing machines and by a kind of convoluted path ended up going back to study and then studied um, English Lit and Hispanic Studies at university. At the end of that degree, um, I was um, invited kind of out of the blue to um, go for an interview with the British Council in London. And when I got to that interview, it turned out it was actually MI6 that was doing the interview. So um, kind of halfway through the interview, they um, they offered me a kind of bit of paper that explained who they were. They went to make a cup of coffee, a cup of coffee, sorry. And uh, yeah, found out it was MI6. So um, really all of that's to say that um, it got to the point that I got through all the different stages of the interview process, which was about six months of psychometric testing and uh, all sorts of background checks and things. And they, they said, we think you're the right person for the job, 
but we don't think you're old enough yet or you're, you're kind of not mature enough for it. So why don't you think, why don't you go overseas and do some work? Do you obviously like traveling, et cetera? And up to that point, I'd only ever um, traveled in Spanish speaking countries for my degree, really. So a lot in South America and a, a lot of time spent in Spain. And so my solution was, I can't go to a Spanish speaking country. I'll go to an Italian speaking country instead, which was kind of the closest thing I could think of. Um, so yeah, I went to Italy to teach English for a year. And when I was there, I met my wife, Jess, who is from Melbourne originally, but she was also in the south of Italy teaching English. And that's where we met. Yeah, so we, we lived together there for about a year. Then we moved back to Scotland and we're in Scotland for about nine years. Um, yeah, nine years, I think, until until we both um decided to move to Australia, partially or, or mainly really because we had a one-year-old son um, at the time and my wife wanted to be around family. And when uh, we, we kind of booked her flights months in advance and then realized she was pregnant with our second child. So so we actually arrived in Australia with a, a one-year-old and Jace was 36 weeks pregnant at the time. Mm. And um, yeah, I had to get a job and we had nowhere to live. And it was a, a kind of full on start, I guess, to to life here. Um, things have calmed down somewhat, I'm happy to say. I can't let a good spy story go, but did MI6 ever get back in touch with you? Well, they did. So um, there's this really strange thing happened um, during all of the, the interviews. So the, there was a two day event uh, that I had to go down to where you were there with other I guess hopeful spies you know James Bond types uh, funnily mentioning James Bond the, the bit of paper I mentioned that they give you to say we are the secret service the second bullet point on that says you do not have a license to kill <laughs> so you know they're, they're obviously very aware of James Bond as a marketing tool for them and um, so, so I went down to this two-day um, training um, assessment thing where it was again psychometric testing bearing in mind as I said I left school at 14 so knowing that that kind of testing was going to happen I had to get a friend of mine to show me how to do long division and all that kind of stuff I, I didn't have any of that in my background and the the kind of they, they keep doing things like deliberately throwing you off kilter I guess so they'll say um okay so what you're about to do is this and you go into a room and it's something completely different. And they're, they're just, there's always an assessor there or two and they're taking notes and they're basically seeing how you react. And at the end of these two days, you know, you're, you're just kind of exhausted because, because of the nature of it. And they said, right, well done. Um, that's you. That's your finish. We'll be in touch, et cetera. And you kind of go out of one room and into a different room. And there was, there were two guys there and they were like, right, you know, you read this, um, you've, you've got five minutes to read up on this, but we want you to present, do a half hour presentation on how you would infiltrate this uh, human trafficking gang set up and what you would do and what steps you would take, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. So they, they're sitting there, you know, while you're kind of thinking, uh, I'm clearly not going home at this stage. And it's just like a massive ring binder full of information, you know, uh, none of which I could really take in. It was kind of you know, um, supposed to be background about these people and um, the trafficking, et cetera. And um, basically, you, you start the 
you start the presentation and they're just sitting there, you know, and um, after about three minutes, you know, there's a whiteboard and I'm kind of drawing lines on it and, you know, a truck or whatever. So it's basically like a three-year-old's plan. And um, then you've run out of things to say, but they, they just continue to sit there. So the whole point is they're trying to see how nervous you'll get, how intimidating they can be. And then when they eventually said, all right, come and sit over here, they started doing this, uh, I realized in retrospect, fairly sophisticated uh, good cop, bad cop thing where one guy was saying, you know, uh, you've done really well on this and this and this. And the other guy was, uh, you know, just gently in a, in a quite sophisticated way, I guess, picking on the fact I was from a working class background and this wasn't really for me and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the, the reason I say all of that is when when I when they told me we think you're the right person, but you're not ready yet. They explained to me, they, they said um, that what those two guys had been trying to do was to get me to lose my temper. Um, and so they hadn't been able to. So it, when I when I grew up, I had quite a, um, I guess, fractious relationship with my dad or controlling on his part relationship with me. And so my defense was always to um match any kind of aggression with being completely calm so the, you know inside i might be kind of churning up but um on the outside my my defense mechanism was to go into kind of uh, as calm as possible and so i think that's what i've been doing when these guys kept trying to push my buttons there so they, they basically said go away for a year um when you come back you know there'll be this other final board interview you know which is when you have three you know q and whoever else from james bond sitting behind a desk and you know it's your final kind of they'll make the decision whether you whether you get in or not and so they called me once i've been in italy they kind of said when are you coming back will you come into this final board interview and they brought up this point again because they have a big binder on you by by the stage two they've kind of been watching what you've done and uh, taking scores of how you've performed and things. And the, the guy said, like, just be aware, this is still a big question mark over you that they haven't seen you losing your cool and they need to see that. So they can just basically say, all right, calm down now, but they, they know what it's like when you lose your cool. So I went into this kind of, you know, room with the red leather kind of Chesterfields and, you know, uh, that, that kind of uh, atmosphere. And there were three, uh, old guys uh, behind a desk and a woman sitting behind me taking notes and things. And so I was really ready for this thing that they were going to do to try and make me freak out and thinking, right, I, I better just try and freak out if I want this job. And um, at one point, I kind of I realized that, that the guy kept asking me the same question over and over again. And it kind of crossed my mind. I thought, oh, shit, maybe this is where they want me to freak out. But I, I didn't feel like freaking out at all in that moment. I felt actually pretty calm. So I just kept answering in a really calm way. Anyway, it got to the end of that interview. And um, somebody got in touch a few days later. And they were like, you know, you've got, you know, whatever it is, like nine out of 10 of the things we're looking for. But you, you just, you're not quite right for this. Um, but I'll tell you what, why don't you apply to the British Council? And... Um, you know, we'll put in a word for you there. And I said, well, I thought I had applied to the British Council. That's who got in touch with me originally. So mm -hmm. how do I do that? And they're like, well, just just do it, you know, I just phone them up. And I said, well, who do I say MI6 told me to phone? And they're like, no, just just mention my name. And it's like, well, what's your name? My name's Mr. Black. 
and, and you know, I, I ended up making that phone call, didn't get through to anyone. It was just a kind of a series. So it was kind of like a, a kind of mirror maze, basically. Nothing ever happened after that. And yes, yeah, so to this day, I'm, I'm not a spy, but you never know, it might happen. Wow. Can you imagine if you had lost your temper? Where would you be? Well, the, the funny, I know. The funny thing is, uh, as I was walking out the room, I, I felt really disappointed with myself that I hadn't lost my temper. And there was a really beautiful vase next to the door. And I thought, smashed it. fuck it, why don't, why don't I just like throw that at them or something? You know, there's a job on the line here. But, you know, of course, I just walked out politely and said goodbye. And, um, you know, my, my lack of temper let me down. Wow. Well, I'm really looking forward to the Paul Delgano spy novel coming up soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just actually read um, Berta Isla, the Javier yeah. Marias novel recently. I was going to and... bring up Javier Marias because there's a, there's a, literally, there is a blank space where his body is lying. <laughs> so yeah, take it up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Actually like, yeah, that book is completely like, is that scenario, isn't it? Like they're, yeah. they're, they're really well, um, you know, well-educated kind of, you know, kid goes overseas, learns some languages, yeah. gets picked up, so... It, it doesn't sell the idea, though, I have to say. You know, it, does, it doesn't make me think, um, that book doesn't make me think, God, I wish I'd been a, been a spy. <laughs> uh, and also, I mean, if, even in just the year between the first, when the first interviews happened, I, I got really excited because I, I was this boy who had been fixing people's washing machines. And then I'm in an interview with a view, literally a view out the window of Buckingham Palace. So, I, you know, for me, what was going through my head was the James Bond ideal. I was going to be going down the side of a mountain on a, a cello case with a beautiful Russian, you know, spy on the back. And, you know, we'd ride fast motorbikes and things. And and in the year in between the two interviews, it just kind of really dawned on me that, you know, British interests probably aren't that exciting. It would be um, a lot around commerce um, and actually quite a lot of, boring stuff and mm. less of the James Bond stuff, sadly. Wow. Well, either way, I hope you do put some of that stuff into a novel at some point. Right. <laughs> Let's talk about your day-to-day -day work in Melbourne now, because you do some work for a screen hub and previously you've written for a lot of different journals, like The Conversation and things like that. Do you want to tell us like, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? I edit a website called Screen Hub, which is part of a, a small family. So there's Arts Hub, which is the, the biggest and most established of the three companies. There's Games Hub, which is video games, um, and that's fairly new. That's about a year old. And then there's Screen Hub, which is um, about 10 years old, basically. And Screen Hub is um, it's reviews and op-eds and you know, industry news and consumer facing news, as in people who watch things um, about, you know, what's on TV, what's in the cinema, what's streaming. So very much um, trying to stay up to date with what's going on and, and find good writers and sometimes write things myself to, um, to kind of cover off on new things that are happening in screen culture. Well, while we're on that, because we do love a recommendation, do you have anything that you can recommend that we go and watch? I, I think, I, I mean, this isn't new uh, by this stage, but one that really stuck with me was The Bear, um, the Disney show that um, aired last year and the second season's about to come out. So if people haven't seen that, it's basically set in a Chicago 
restaurant, like a, a, a not a down at heel restaurant, but it's a restaurant that basically um, serves up a particular kind of meat sandwich, and that's what they're known for, and it's it's kind of loved by locals, but it's it's kind of down at heel, and um, a brother that one brother's running it, and one brother returns. Sorry, one brother was running it, uh, but then he dies, and his other brother comes back to take over the family business. But he's a kind of um, restaurant trained chef, you know, an elite chef, and it's really the, the shows about the drama uh, of this guy trying to keep this business going, where people don't refer to you as chef and you know stand at attention when you walk into a room. But it's it's you know much more rough and tumble. Um, uh, yeah, that's a great show. Hmm. Good to know. All right. Well, let's move on to your writing. Uh, Country of Eternal Light is out now. Um, it's your third book. You've written one other novel previously and a memoir as well, um, which I haven't read. But this book, like, I just found it amazing. Um, I read through it over about a week. It's not a spoiler to say that your protagonist, Margaret Bryce, is dead and her ghost roams through this book. She reflects on her life. And she observes the life of her children and grandchildren. The book spans her life and slightly beyond. And it ranges from 1940s and into basically, you know, 2020, 2021, like through the pandemic. Do you want to tell us a bit about your protagonist, Margaret, and her family? So Margaret was 64 when she died, which was in 2014. And she's narrating roughly from 2021, as you mentioned, the the time frames flip around all over the place in the book so one minute you're in 1962 and the next minute you're in 1993 and the next minute you're in 2020 um margaret's not a particularly spiritual woman she says at some point that she doesn't believe in souls she's not she's kind of anti-new age mysticism and yet she's kind of found herself in this situation where she is dead but still around and She's still around in the sense that, you know, you know, she's not just recalling times from the past. She's actually revisiting those times. So in some scenes, she'll have living Margaret and dead Margaret in the same scene. And dead Margaret's able to kind of, I guess, have a different perspective on things that are going on, including looking at herself. Um, she has twin daughters, Eva and Rachel. Rachel, um, but both of them are about 40 at the time that she dies. Rachel lives in Melbourne with her wife, Jem, and her two boys, uh, her two sons. And uh, her other daughter, Eva, lives in Madrid, uh, where she teaches at an international school. Um, and so 2014 becomes this kind of um, focal point of the novel, because that's when Margaret knows she, she, she's been kind of terminally ill for two years. She knows She's going to die. The hospital have taken her off medication. It's just the kind of slow slope down to dying for her now. And her daughters, who have been estranged since they were about um, 12 years old and really only kept in touch through Margaret. Margaret's been this conduit to pass on the news of what the sisters are doing. They were incredibly close as girls, but then there was a rupture and both girls come back over to Aberdeen from their respective um, places overseas to spend three weeks with Margaret in this, you know, to spend some time together and bury the hatchet essentially uh, between each other, or that that's the idea that Margaret has. And um, yeah, so there's a focus on them. There's a focus on, on Margaret's husband, Henry, her estranged husband, 
who she loves. He's he's been a good dad, a good man, but she's also um kind of really annoyed with him for reasons she can't fully understand. I mean, he's he's a drinker. He's got uh, definitely got mental health problems by the end of her life, including having um, electroconvulsive therapy uh, to deal with depression and psychosis. And she increasingly has a sense, you know, she loves going back. She loves seeing her grandkids, her best friend, Barb, who she's been friends with since um, since they both worked at the Aberdeen Telephone Exchange as telephonists when they were 18 or so. Um, so she loves it, but as well, she's kind of tired and bored and doesn't really have a sense of why it is she's gone back to see these things. So she, she'll reflect on all sorts of things. She, she's a, a working class woman, but um, she's also been ferociously self-taught. She's been a massive reader. She's always been interested in ideas. So she, she'll reflect on things like, you know, the Catholic faith and Dante and all the, these kind of books and ideas around purgatory and things but she doesn't really think she's in purgatory and you know she's not catholic uh, so she doesn't kind of it's it's not something that chimes with her as an idea of what's meant to happen um and yet yes we, we follow her and increasingly i guess she starts thinking there's either something she's forgetting or something she's chosen to forget that happened in her life and maybe if she could remember that, she could essentially just go to sleep and have some peace. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the amazing things about this book is because it's not a book where we talk about, you know, her spiritual journey or her like fact that she's a ghost or there's really not much about that because it is pretty much her day-to-day life living in this weird kind of limbo state. And there's really not a huge amount of commentary on why she's there or her reflections on it. But um, it does come to like a beautiful ending point, like at the end of the book. But I guess with this novel, like, I feel like it's not a, I, I guess when I read the blurb, in a way, I was kind of worried about it being a book about a ghost, because I think we get stuck in these books where there is mm. kind of a moral or they have to do something or there's some kind of thing that, you know, they've done wrong in the past. But this book doesn't really do that. Do you want to just tell me, uh, I guess, about your um, philosophical point of view on on this idea of her being in this point? Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, Margaret herself doesn't believe, she's not a huge believer in ghosts and the spiritual, um, and neither am I. And when I was wrestling, I guess, with the idea of writing this book and the narrator being dead, um, I started getting caught up in the idea of, not so much world building, but after world building or after life mm. building. And then a, a bit a bit like you mentioned there, Ben, kind of I, I don't really I'm not really interested in ghost stories because they're so obviously fabricated. I mean, all fiction is uh, by definition, but it's not really a story I wanted to tell. And um as a reader and a writer, I hate um, kind of moralizing. Um, mm. It's it's not what I want to get from the experience of books. Um, I think obviously, inevitably, whenever somebody writes something, it kind of comes with uh, their moral view or their you know spiritual view, to put it in those terms, etc. It's it's all in there. It's all imbued. But I'm not trying to um, be evangelical about what I think happens after death. And, you know, what, what I do think happens after death is not very much. You know, I don't, mm. I'm 
I'm not a, um, I'm not religious. I don't, you know, believe in a, a kind of magical afterlife. Um, so I, I think that's just infused throughout the book that the issue for me wasn't how do I create a ghost or where is the place that Margaret is? And in a way, I think that works to the book's advantage because Margaret also doesn't know where she is. Mm. Um, it, it isn't an afterworld. There isn't a, you know, a, a kind of bright tunnel that she goes through. She just is. Um, and she's quite a practical woman. So she she essentially is just getting on with things with, with the occasional grumble mm. and this, yeah, this sense of foreboding that something has gone on in the past, but certainly not... Um, getting caught up really in in where she is and what that might mean in the the grander scheme of things yeah one of the books this reminded me of stranger was alan moore's jerusalem because there's this space in that book where he does talk about this kind of this space that's not anywhere and it's not really you know it's not heaven it's not hell it's not purgatory it's not any of those spaces just it's like an in-between space and i thought that the way you did this in the book was fantastic. And also having this central character who's not bounded by time or space, it gives you so much freedom to play with the chronology of the book. Do you want to tell us a bit about how Margaret, like she just flits through time the whole way through the book. And as you said, like the chronology just goes from, you know, basically all over the 20th century, 21st century. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun to do. So um, the, the kind of, process for me writing this book that there are parts of it that were written nearly 10 years ago but the the actual the heart of the book and the way it looks and the way it feels now all happened in a really condensed period of three months at the end of 2021 where um I'd lost my job um Melbourne was still in massive lockdown everyone was exhausted with that um I was at home all the time and I, I'd set myself this kind of um idea that I was going to write this book and get it finished and really get into it. And and I did. It was like monomaniac territory. You know, I woke in the morning, I worked for eight, nine hours on it every single day, went to bed. Didn't, I wasn't talking to anyone about what I was writing. Um I, I was also I was writing it from a position of all sorts of senses of failure, really, as well. Um, you know, my my previous publisher had to drop me because they had to drop everyone because of uh, financial um, kind of things that happened through COVID, I guess. And so this was me starting my third book, um, potentially finding a third publisher, but also thinking I probably won't find a publisher for this book. Um, and having all the freedom that came with that of thinking I, I really can just write what I want. Um, I I don't have a I don't if there's a publisher I don't know who that publisher is and I don't know what kind of books they're into so um I wasn't bound geographically thinking this was a book for Australia I wasn't bound by type of publisher or genre or anything I really could just write it as I wanted to and because it was in that state of the three months of kind of being in a dream you know it, it almost like a trance like state for three months um, it just meant I had an I, I felt incredibly connected to my intuition so that the craft was there because I was in training every day but my intuition also felt really strong so I, I the, the, the book does work chronologically you know if you took all the bits out and laid it from 1940, 1945 to 2021 it does make sense chronologically but I wrote it out of chronology so I, I had the um, I had a 
really detailed timeline um, for lots of reasons, one of which being um, there are a few characters in it and just knowing what age everyone is. So, you know, when they were born and, you know, when they got married and this, that and the other. So I, I, I always had a kind of thing to look back on, a safety blanket, but in the actual writing of it, um, I could, you know, w w without missing a beat, go from 1975 to 1993, say, um, and just write write that and then get to the end of that and say, mm, I think we need to go back to 2014. Mm. So there was a, a, a wonderful freedom in, you know, the, the timeline uh, being completely worked out. But the actual writing of it and the ability to jump from time to time being uh, just freeing, just really going with the flow and trying to follow my intuition and um, thematically what, what would lead on from one thing to the next and, and just follow it, follow the story. Mm. I think that makes this book really special because you have these beautiful set pieces and then you'll jump to a different timeline. And some of the timelines, you know, you have, um, there's a beautiful scene where she's watching uh, her daughter in Melbourne and she's, you know, they've got the two kids in the bath and this beautiful scene where she's watching them in the bath. And, um, and there's also a scene where she is noticing that something strange is happening in Melbourne because they're wearing masks. And you, uh, like, I think that some of these like moments in this book and also the way you've mixed them with something that, you know, might happen in the 70s with something that happens in 2021 um, makes this book such a joy to read because you, you roll through it um, with, you know, your central character, but essentially you're, um, you've almost created like these different like segments of the book in different timelines and different periods. And, um, and every single kind of, you know, like when you come to a new chapter and it's a new year, it's almost like a little world that you've created like the whole way along. Mm. So, um, yeah. Like it, it reads so nicely because it's a surprise to the reader at every step of the way. Mm. And, and, you know, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, there, the, I can't remember who said this, but there's um, a, a Harold Pinter play, I think, that where it starts at the end and um, finishes at the beginning chronologically. So it's kind of going backwards the whole way through. And I can't remember who said this, whether it was Harold Pinter himself, but, you know, no matter what you do with the chronology of something, um, the story always works forwards. Um, so I really had that in mind too, that, you know, it, it doesn't really work if, you know, three quarters of the way into the book, you're suddenly back in 1950 and it's, it's not moving the story, propelling the story forwards. So I really enjoyed uh, and thought about that challenge and uh, really got into it. Of, uh, even though um, I, I really appreciate what you said um you know it's music to my ears that e each thing feels like a new world because that's what i was trying to do but it, it's for me the challenge was well how do i it, the story still needs to be propelled forwards mm -hmm. it always needs to be moving forwards and not kind of get stuck um 20 years ago or 30 years ago so yeah th thank you for saying that yes um in terms of the influences on this work, did you have some personal experience for this book or with some other works that were influential for it? Um, in terms of personal experience, I mean, my my mum died in my mum died in 2014. So that's wow. definitely a reason um to have, you know, the mother figure dying in 2014. Um, in terms of the the kind of personality of Margaret, I would say there are bits of my mum there. 
but also bits of my dad's mom, who I was incredibly close to growing up, uh, my, my gran, um, who was um, very self-taught. You know, she worked, she worked in the fish yards and stopped working because she had triplets. They, they were the first triplets born successfully in Aberdeen ever. Wow. So they, they became kind of famous, uh, the Delgarno triplets. Um, and so, you know, Margaret's got twins, my grand had triplets. So there, there are definite echoes there. Um, in terms of the, the book structure, I, I didn't think about this at the time as being an influence, but it definitely is, um, you know, Hopscotch by Julio Cortázar, oh, yeah. which, um, as I'm sure you know, and lots of people listening would know, at the start of that novel, there's a, a bit of a challenge thrown down, which is you can either read this book chronologically from chapter one to chapter 73, or you can follow this kind of complex pattern that he sets mm-hmm. out. Um, and, and all the chapters are numbered in a way that when you get to the end of one chapter, chapter eight, say, it's like turn to chapter 15. And so you have this alternate way of dividing up the novel. And um, even though this novel doesn't do that, I, I think that was a bit of an influence. I mean, Cortázar generally is a big influence on me. So yeah, that that kind of just a- absolute kind of sense of playfulness with the chronology and the time probably comes from that, I think. Mm. Well, I also have to ask you, um, I was in Melbourne for the first part of the lockdown, which was pretty shit. Um, yeah. And having two kids as well, um, mm. which we do, I got nothing done. Every creative project I destroyed. I literally did nothing creative at all. I couldn't even read a book. But how mm. did you manage to like squeeze out a, a book like this? It's a good question. Um, it was very, as, as I said before, late in the lockdowns. It was the end of the last lockdown um, and therefore the end of kind of delta and the, just before the start of omicron you know it's funny <laughs> funny funny that we kind of divide things up like that now but um everyone was really exhausted so I, I have two kids you know and they were at home doing what we kind of euphemistically called homeschooling which mm. was just you know my youngest we'd, we'd kind of say to him if you can do two hours that's enough Mm-hmm. Um, my eldest was just kind of down in the dumps the whole time because, you know, he didn't want to put his camera on for all these, you know, Google Meet classrooms and stuff. So really, as as a household, um, we were, I, I guess, just trying to think about our mental health as much as possible uh, and also give each other space, which, uh, as you know, from your experience and lots of people would know, um, having your own space was at a bit of a premium given we literally can go very far beyond the garden Mm. gate for so long. So the the way I saw it was um, I've never really written at night. Uh, I can't write at night. Uh, My my brain just doesn't work properly. So because I knew my job was going to be made redundant and rather than take any time off after that, I knew I could give myself three months and that if I really focused, I could I could smash this novel out, basically. And so that's what I did. I, I think it was just, you know, I, I've always uh, worked, you know, since I was a teenager. And uh, therefore, I've always had to write in the very early morning or grab a couple of hours at the weekend or whatever it is or you know, as as you know from what you're saying, having kids a couple of hours at the weekend is also a fanciful idea usually. 
So really, I just took it as a massive opportunity and thought, well, I'll keep those office hours. So at the office, I'd be there nine till five, as in in my house in lockdown from nine till five. Therefore, I can kind of do that. And yeah, of course, you stop and kids need lunch and you do need to check in on them. So I, I couldn't be completely absent. But um, just knowing it was a one-off opportunity that really I'd probably not get that chance again. And I definitely needed to get another job before too long just gave me the energy, I guess, to push through and to do it. Wow. Unbelievable. Um, I, yes, I, <laughs> I kind of envy you in a way because you actually got this done, but um, yeah, it's, that must've been a tough <laughs> gig to do, but um, well done. It is just a gorgeous book. So congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. I should ask you what you're working on next. So um, I actually, um, talking about lockdown, one of the other kind of pressures I had on me at the time was I got another book signed while I just started working on the novel um, and knew it was picked up on proposals. So I hadn't written a word yet. So I knew I had to get the novel finished if I was ever going to do it and then start on this book, which I did literally the day after I sent it off to uh, my agent. And um, so that book's just about to come out. It's it's a nonfiction. Oh, wow. It's called Prudish Nation. Um, and really, that's it's part memoir, but it's also got interviews with around 30 contemporary Australian authors. So people like uh, Christos Cholkos and Ellen Van Nierven, Lee Kaufman, um, and, you know, 27 others. Um, really looking at the question of... Um, is Australia prudish? But yeah, more, more broadly, trying to kind of calibrate in some way through these interviews and through my own experience, how Australia responds to and looks at, um, you know, between quotation marks, unconventional relationships, whether mm. that's with another person or with yourself in the case of, um, you know, people who don't have a partner, but they may be trans or gay, etc. cetera. Um, so that's really, um, yes, what I'm working on. I mean, I've I finished that now, like only a couple of weeks ago, doing the final proofs and things, but that one's just about to come out. And then um, I've started working on what I think will become a novel, um, which is really um, not down to the elevator pitch kind of uh, length yet or anything, but it's basically, uh, it's about two 13-year-old children who are separated by time and space, and it's looking at that very transformative and confusing and uh, weird year where your body's changing and um, your view on the world's changing and you're flooded with hormones, but you're still a kid, but you're nearly an adult, but then you're still a, still a kid again. So a lot of back and forth. And these, uh, it's really asking the question, I guess, of what would happen if these two 13-year-olds from different times and places uh, came together like would they actually be a good support for each other uh, would they be friends and you know how how might their experiences from different times help the other one out that's that's mm. kind of the premise interesting okay well, with prudish nation which sounds pretty cool <laughs> so when can we expect to see that like in bookshops so that that comes out on june the third so wow. uh real soon um and yeah so so last year um yeah mostly last year for me was this kind of the, the busiest time I've ever had as a writer or, or a human really uh, still working still got the kids and 
Um, the novel had been with, with the novel. I kind of thought it would probably bounce around as my previous novel had. I think I had got like thirteen or fourteen rejections from my previous one over a matter of months before somebody picked it up. So with this one, I kind of sent it off to Martin, my agent, thinking that's out of the way for six months. Now I can really work on Prudish Nation. Mm-hmm. But um, the first publisher it went to, so Catherine Milne at HarperCollins, um, phoned me up. I mean, she she wanted it immediately. She said that, you know, basically we have to have this novel. So that was a strange new experience for me. But it also meant that the production process for that book started soon after. So I was trying to write Prudish Nation from scratch, doing all these interviews and get my thoughts together and do research. But then the novel kept coming back with, you know, edits and different iterations of this and that to look at. Um, and then I'd kind of, you know, I'd kind of get to a weekend or something after about three months of just nonstop work thinking, right, okay, good. Um, this weekend I'll have free and either the novel would come back again or somebody would want to redo an interview or something for Prudish Nation or I'd have, you know, proof pages going off and coming back with that. So it was a really, uh, it was a really intense year. Um, and that that has kind of carried on until maybe, I don't know, four weeks ago when the, the final, final proofs for Prudish Nation were sent off. And that that's the first time that it's like, oh, great. I don't, I don't have to kind of stress about writing a book, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's the weirdest kind of stress, right? Because I mean, I, I love writing, like I kind of, you know, I, any other younger iteration of myself would have, you know, chopped both feet off to have two books on the go at the same time. So I love every minute of doing it. And I know that I have to be relaxed and into it to do a good job, but it's, it's a weird um car crash of things where it's like right I'm kind of in the zone and I'm relaxed but I'm also really exhausted and stressed out so yeah it's it's, it's been a balancing act is there a standout interview that you did for British Nation that you'd like to tell us about I, I was really um kind of touched is the wrong word I think but really grateful as I always am like I used to interview people for a living you know um and I've always been really, you know, as an interviewer, I'm basically like I'm being now, which is a lot of ums and as, and definitely not a professional radio voice. And, you know, I kind of stumble over things and then I go back and all the rest of it. And so when I do these interviews and then when I look back at them, I'm just amazed at how completely open and unguarded people are. So um, lots of the interviews are great what what i particularly enjoyed personally was um some of the slightly older people in the book so interviews like dennis altman or um andrea goldsmith for example mm. who who are people who nobody can possibly question that you know they've talked the talk and walked the walk in terms of um you know identity politics and um advocacy and all the rest of it but it was really interesting for me to talk to those people and get their take on current identity politics and, um, you know, things like the LGBTQIA plus acronym, et cetera, which um, I guess I'm of a mind just to automatically think these things are good and we should support it. So basically if somebody wants to identify in a certain way, my brain just goes into that's progressive that's good i support mm-hmm. it that that's kind of the, the process my brain goes through so it's kind of interesting talking to people who are from a slightly 
different, coming from a slightly different point of view because they've been through a, a different journey and they kind of, uh, I guess, question a bit more where things are currently at um, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of all that identity, identity politics, etc. Um, I really enjoyed talking to both Ellen van Nierven uh, and uh, one of the other uh, authors in there to Arlie Alizi, who, um, apart from um, being kind of non-binary or trans, um, are also Indigenous. And that's um, looking at both of those labels and what they come loaded with and uh, the assumptions that go along with those, the baggage that comes along with those and how, how you might unpick that and how it actually might differ depending on what cultural background you come from. Um, I find that fascinating too. Um, but as I say, the whole thing, I just, you know, I, I can't believe really how candid people were being. And the, the way the book's written is uh, rather than block interviews, everything's um, kind of threaded through it so that the chapters are arranged thematically. So it might be around uh, the concept of coming out or, um, you know, when things go wrong or whatever, you know, relationships breaking down. But yeah, it'll be, you know, you might bring in um, three or four different authors um, plus my own writing on it. To, so pe people come and go all the way through the book, um, which, yeah, hopefully feels compelling for people reading it. Okay, awesome. Yeah, very keen to read that when it comes out. Right. <laughs> All right. I do want to mention Martin Shaw because uh, he is your agent and he <clears> is just <throat> a person we were discussing before we started recording that every single award in Australia at the moment has somebody from his stable on the awards list because he is just signing up the most exciting writers in Australia at the moment. Do you want to tell us about working with him and your connection, uh, getting to know him? Yeah, so uh, my connection with Martin goes back to um, it's either late 2016 or early 2017 when I found out that my first book, which was called um, And You May Find Yourself, uh, that the publisher had gone out of business. The books had gone to Hardy Grant to some storehouse somewhere. And then Hardy Grant message saying, uh, we're pulping everything you know that we've got. We've just got way too many books. So do you want to buy any more of your books back at a kind of discount rate? Uh, which I did, you know, I've still got, you know, way too many of them. Um, but, you know, um, this, this was kind of a, I guess, confronting thing for me. The book came out late 2015, a year or so later. It's like, you know, we're turning them into glue. You know, it's literally going to be low roll. People will be wiping their bum with your, you know, um, sweat and tears, basically. So um, I wrote a blog post at the time around what that actually felt like, going from thinking, I've written a book, I'll take my grandkids into readings and show them the book on the shelf, to realizing, oh, you know, it's it's gone like a year later, nobody will ever read this book or see it again. Um, so I wrote a blog post about that and mentioned this idea that... Um, you know, I didn't have a publisher, I didn't have a book anymore, but I was working on another manuscript that I thought was the best thing uh, that I had ever written, which to be fair, I think every next thing that I'm writing is the best thing I've ever written. You know, that's what keeps me going, thinking the next thing will be better. Um, and at the end, as people did in the, the kind of golden days of blogging, I guess, I said, oh, if you're a publisher or an agent, please get in touch kind of thing um, and put a little link for my email 
thinking that nobody would. It was just one of those things, you know, people do at the end of blog posts. What what are you reading? You know, nobody nobody ever responds. Um, and but yeah, Martin got in touch and uh, emailed and said, "Well, tell me about this book." Um, you know, um, send me an email, give me give me a kind of idea of what it is. So I did. I gave my outline of the book that was a few years later to become Polly. And then he said, oh, can you send me 100 pages? And I, I think I'd only written like, I don't know, about 12 pages. And uh, I was so kind of excited that, that there, there was this tiny little, you know, the fire had gone out. And then it's like there's this tiny little ember of hope for my, you know, so-called writing career. So I just like smashed out as much as I could and then tidied that up over the course of you know a week or two and sent it off to Martin. And yeah, he got back and he um he really liked it. And basically in 2018, um I went to Germany for work for a couple of weeks. Martin lives in Germany, he's from New Zealand, worked at readings in Melbourne for 20 odd years, and then moved to Germany with his family. So while I was in Germany, got in touch, we met up and had some, um, you know, German food um, and a beer. And it was still a little bit kind of like we were not sure whether we were going to date each other. I mean, I was sure I was the, I was the keen guy on the date that was just like, you know, <laughs> can we get married? What will we call our kids? Uh, but Martin was still playing it cool at that stage. But yeah, maybe... Three or four months later, he he said, "Oh well, I suppose I suppose we better sign you up." Um, at which point, he was still working with Alex Adset, the literary agent. But then, since then, he's he's kind of launched his own business. And as you rightly say, I mean, um, it's, Martin's almost like a, a walking reading list. So you could, mm. I think, you could get by pretty easily reading just the books that Martin has signed and have a, a pretty rich reading experience. Certainly. Um, if you're looking at contemporary fiction being produced out of Australia at the moment and, and New Zealand. Yeah, um, he's brilliant. I think that he's doing a great job, especially for Australian authors and New Zealand authors, authors as well. So, yeah, he's just doing a, a fantastic job. Yeah, yeah. All right, we should move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you? So as I mentioned, I mean, I left school at 14 and I, I didn't actually, um, I was kind of dreading this part of the interview and I've always dreaded being asked this because when I hear other authors speaking, they say, well, you know, I read Proust when I was five and, you know, et cetera. <laughs> and really I, I didn't uh, read anything. You know, I think the only things I would have read would have been things like Tintin or Asterisk uh, and Obelisk. But even then, I think I was just engaging with the pictures. And so... I guess the very first book that I actively read, I'd have been 15 or 16, and, and it would have been Train Spotting because that was just such a huge phenomenon at the time that it came out. Uh, and it was also strangely, you know, which is why it became a juggernaut of a book. It was the book you read if you didn't read books and you were a young man or, you know, an old man because it was, you know, it was kind of gritty and working class and it had swearing and drugs and things in it. So I read, uh, I read that. I, I wouldn't kind of say. I, I mean, I, I did really enjoy it, but I wasn't thinking this is where I want to kind of focus my life in terms of writing. Um, but when I went back to um, study English as a night class in a local college, um, when I was yeah seventeen, I think, uh, having left school three years earlier. 
the books that we looked at, one of them was Catch-22, the Joseph Heller book. And I remember being really uh, excited by that. Uh, th this is coming from a base level of not having read anything, but this idea that you, you could take uh, something as, you know, objectively horrendous as war and death and, you know, murder and, you know, mutilation, but create um, a comic book out of that, you know, satire, lots of laughs, lots of wordplay, etc. I really enjoyed that. And when I went to university, you know, to, I studied English at university and I, I engaged with, you know, everything I was reading. I really liked Samuel Beckett's novels, Malloy and Malone Dies. But my partner at the time, I, I was studying English literature so that, you know, inevitably there's a focus on 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century classics, as it were. Um, but my partner at the time was doing a master's in um, Scottish and Irish contemporary literature. And I just picked up um, one night, How Late It Was, How Late by James Kelman, which was one of the books they were doing. And that absolutely blew my mind. It's one of the the few books really in my life that I've read cover to cover in one sitting. And, you know, you, you couldn't have got it off me if you'd, you know, tried to drag it off of me. I was absolutely enthralled by the book, enthralled by the language, um, couldn't kind of believe when I read up later that, you know, it had been so controversial that he'd won the Booker Prize and, you know, Simon Jenkins, the columnist, had described him as an illiterate savage and just these kind of incredibly class-based um, kind of snobby things about his writing because that, for me then, and, and still now James Kelman's writing, I think is right up there with everything you'd basically, everything I'd want from the very best literature it's funny, it's engaging, it's authentic, and it's dealing with the huge issues of life and death and, you know, existence and philosophy. So there was that one. And at exactly, in exactly the same period, uh, a book called The Trick is to Keep Breathing by Janice Galloway, another Glasgow writer, um, which again, um, kind of, yeah, blew my mind in the sense that here was a, a Scottish writer, Scottish contemporary writer, who well, all I really knew about contemporary literature at that point was maybe, you know, kind of Nick Hornby, that kind of very, kind of, I guess, commercial, laddish kind of books. And Janice Galloway has this thing that I kind of relate to what I, what I think of as good Scottish literature, a kind of sensibility which is this absolute lack of pretension. Um, the language is never flowery, but at the same time, as with James Kelman, it's like deeply poetic, but it's a hard fought poetics. It's not flowery for the sake of being flowery. You know, that that if you're using a metaphor, it has to be like a really, really good metaphor. You're not just like flinging them out. Um, so you know, the control of language, the um, the fact that, you know, people get out of cars, they don't disembark vehicles, you know, just the, the word choice being these bread and butter words. And somehow through that kind of clear, everyday down to earth language, being able to create something with just incredible power um, had a terrific impact on me. So, yeah, th those those books are the ones that stand out from that period. Brilliant. OK. Do you read a lot of Scottish literature still? I do, yeah. I read as much of it as I can. So, um, yeah, there's there's a contemporary Scottish writer called Jenny Fagan who is absolutely incredible, just, you know, terrific, terrific writer. 
And basically all of those things I've just said about, you know, Janice Galloway and James Kelman, um, uh, Jenny Fagan has all of those things too, and um, has a new book coming out shortly. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I think Jenny's pronouns might be they them, but I'm not actually sure. So I'm just going to say they to for the sake of uh, argument. But yeah, they have a memoir coming out this year. They uh, just wrote a novella called Hex, which is uh, a terrific um retelling it's it's something polygon are doing in scotland where they get writers to kind of interrogate and write write short books novellas basically about historical events in scotland and her one is mind-blowing uh, so their one's mind-blooming and uh, they also wrote one called luck and booth which is a novel in which the devil's daughter has just killed the devil but she rocks up at a Edinburgh tenement to be the surrogate mother for the tenement owner and his wife who can't conceive naturally. Uh, and the baby is born something like a day later or something. Uh, and the baby has horns because it's the devil's <laughs> daughter's baby. So um, anyway, just fantastic kind of, again, just kind of beautiful prose down to earth, but um, all these, all these kind of magical things hidden inside it. Okay. Wow. I'm going to have to look her up. I have not read any of her work. Yeah. Yeah. I highly recommend it. Excellent. All right. Well, speaking of that stuff, let's talk about the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to. Um, I'm, I'm reading a couple at the moment because um, primarily because I'm speaking to the authors at the Margaret uh, River Readers and Writers Festival this coming weekend. So oh, you're lucky. Oh, wow. Okay. You're I know. Very lucky. <laughs> well, I've never been to Western Australia, so I'm oh, super love it. It's excited. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So I believe. Uh, I'm not a wine drinker, and uh, I, I feel a bit sad about that because it's obviously a, a famous wine region. But um, I'll enjoy the rest anyhow, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, one, one of the uh, authors I'm talking to is a writer called Madison Godfrey. They're a young writer. This is their second book. It's called Dress Rehearsals. And it's a memoir told in poetry. So, yeah, it's real uh, interesting. It's not an approach I've seen before. So they're kind of prose poems, uh, more, I guess, standard form poems, but telling the story of, um kind of Madison's life and development, I guess you could say. And um also because I'm going to be interviewing this author, uh, there's an author called Richard King who is about to release a non-fiction book called Here Be Monsters. Um, and that, that's been fascinating reading too. So it's basically it's about technology, but it's really about um our relationship to technology historically, but uh, especially in the present moment. And the, the kind of argument is really that we, we think of uh, a couple of things. We think of zombies being this kind of uncanny humans. They're, they're the undead uh, or, you know, uh, so they, they kind of came to popular attention in 1968 with Night of the Living Dead. But then also in 1968, you had 2001, A Space Odyssey by Kubrick. And uh, there was HAL 9000, which was this idea we're all, I guess, thinking about now, you know, uh, AI. How far can how far can it go? What happens when it kind of gets its own mind and takes over? So he kind of talks about those, but it's really um, the the kind of thesis I guess he puts forward is the actual thing that's happening is not this external thing that's coming at us and attacking us, but 
that technology always has and and now maybe more rapidly so than ever is changing us so that it's changing what it means to be human just because things are ever more mediated through technology so um you know he talks about the trolley problem where you know if you um flick the switch on the the tram line uh, one person will die instead of five and mm. most people will say well I, I would flick the switch because one person dies five survive but then when people are asked would you push that one person onto the rail to slow down the tram um would you do that because it'll save the five people and you know hardly anybody says they would do that because suddenly it feels like this kind of big moral problem um so he kind of uses that i guess as a bit of a touchstone to um talk about how you know you know we're all our kind of disembodied selves uh online twitter etc and th- there's a resulting kind of lack of empathy um that happens and is, is developed through that because we're not eyeballing people and it's kind of why we, we feel we can just say really ru- not, not me personally or you but um say really rude things to people or really outrageous things because we're we're disembodied we're right Actually, our reality is mediated through these tech innovations. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And yeah, I'm, I'm interviewing Richard at the festival and we definitely won't run out of things to talk about. Mm. Wow. Okay. That sounds exciting. I'll have to look at the program. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Should be good. Um, what One I'm definitely keen to read and I'm just trying to get time to do so is Wall, which is a new book by Jen, Jen Craig. Craig. Yeah. So I loved uh, Panthers and the Museum of Fire. I haven't read Since the Accident, which is mm. Jen's first book. I believe it's just back in print now. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I, I kind of, uh, I, I find it really, what, what's the word? I kind of, I almost want to like throw roses at somebody who writes like Jen Craig, uh, not not throw roses at her, throw them at her sentences because um I, I don't have the sense she's pandering to anybody at all with what she's writing. There's such a, a artistic intent in every single word and every single sentence and the whole way it's put together that um, I just love it. I love the experience. I, I loved the experience of being Panthers in the Museum of Fire and uh, look forward to reading the new one, Wall. I'm halfway through it and um, I think it's her best book yet. Ooh, have you read the first one as well? Yeah, I've read. Uh, oh, I've read great. Yeah, all of her work so far. I think this is easily the best book yet. And um, yeah, um, she will be back on the show like pretty soon, I think. Great. Oh, well, that's really good to hear. Now I'm even more excited to uh, to read it. That's fantastic. Yeah. No, it is. Um, It's brilliant. I'm, yeah, I think it's 200 pages. I'm 100 pages in and I will probably finish it tomorrow. So yes, highly Excellent. recommended. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I, I'm sold. Uh, I can't wait to read that one. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Paul Dalgano. This week's episode is brought to you by the new experimental album from Jennifer Lopez. Here's your exclusive sneak peek. Well, it's still better than her acting. Stream it now on Spotify.
We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Paul's Desert Island Books. So, um, I, as I think people do, I listen to your show quite often, Ben, and I always assume people write these down. Otherwise, they're just uh, very talented orators who can <laughs> keep all these ideas in their mind. So I wrote mine down um, on a bit of paper the other day, then lost a bit of paper um, and was scrambling for it and then have just written them on uh, my screen on a Word document. So it's not the same list I had a few hours ago, but it's my new list of Desert Island books. Um the first one I would say um, is a Stone Cold classic. It's uh, Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes. Um, I'm just listening. I've read it twice before. Um, I tried reading it in Spanish and failed miserably. I've read it twice in English, and I'm currently listening to it as an audiobook. And I just think it's um, it just contains multitudes. It's kind of unbelievable, really. How I think the audiobook's like sixty hours long or something. So it's just. To me, uh, I mean, obviously, it's the first kind of modern novel. It's a comic masterpiece, but it's also a satire. Um, it has just this great thing where, you know, book two, which was written or, or published 10 years after the first one, is kind of in response to another book that came out in between where somebody did a sequel to the first one. And so part two opens with this really long, extended this basically of this uh, guy, uh, Alonso Fernandez de Avellaneda, who uh, wrote this um, kind of, he claimed to be um, the person, you know, the, the author. He, he wrote this kind of second book. Um, and then Cervantes comes out with his part two of Don Quixote, all of which at the start is really, you know, laying into uh, this other kind of pretender who uh, had been writing the book in the interim. So, that, that's one of a million reasons why I choose that book. Um, Hopscotch by Julio Cortázar. I mentioned this before. Um, I, you know, Julio Cortázar is one of uh, the great Argentinian writers. He's not the only one, but he's one of them. What I love about him, um, I love Borges, who's probably considered the other top Argentinian writer. For me, Julio Cortázar is you know, as encyclopedic as Borges, but with way more sense of fun. Um, mm. And I love that about his books. Um, as I mentioned before, this one has, you know, an alternate way to read the book. But it's just absolutely, um, yeah, full of full of playfulness. Uh, I would never get tired reading that on a desert island. So, yeah, I take that one. Um, my third book would be Loitering with Intent by Muriel Spark which is quite a recent Muriel Spark read for me. I mean, I'd, I'd, the ones I'd read before were Memento Mori, um, Prime of Miss Jean Brody, obviously. And what I absolutely um, loved about reading this book and, and Muriel Spark's writing generally is um, there's a sensibility there that's a bit, it, it's magical realist, but in the same way that Kafka is magical realist. So it's not, kind of here we go with a, a baroque version you know gabriel garcia marquez where it's like wow blood runs down the street then it turns right then it turns left but um magical elements hidden within crystalline prose so kafka does that i think he's like the first kind of you know magical realist really um and in this book muriel spark does it too so on the face of it it's a very straightforward story um about a 
uh, a woman called Fleur Talbot who uh, has been trying to write her first novel uh, and at the same time she's working as a secretary for something called the Autobiographical Society. So all, all seems very straightforward but then everything starts changing in the book until you start seeing that elements of what are in her book are starting to come true in real life with these people she's met since writing those pieces etc so yeah um love that book and it, it sent me on a a bit of a mission to try and read all of Muriel Sparks stuff I think and uh, she's a, a writer that kind of um I, I never get bored of reading um book four um, the Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner by James Hogg. Have you read that one? I've not read that. I've heard of so, it, but I haven't read it. So the, there's the, it's from um, 18, 1824, and the, there's this thing in Scottish literature that is an absolute, um, from, from kind of the 18th century, basically, that happens, there's a real, Real splitting uh, happens. It's actually got a name that I can't remember right now, but academics write about it, where there's a duality crops up in Scottish literature. And it happened um, around the time of Britain becoming Britain and James VI of Scotland becoming James I of Great Britain. So all the arts patronage from Scotland moved down to England and suddenly you had a country that was no longer really a country and it had no patronage and the King James Bible came out in English. So what did this mean for these, um, you know, other things? So so with somebody like Robert Burns, who was right in that kind of period, you see his poems are kind of some in Scots, some in English, some in part Scots and English. So there's a kind of fracturing of the, the self or the psyche that goes on, most famously in Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, that's the kind of mm. um, the the kind of the main one that people know that does that but there are lots of them and the, the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner by james hogg is one of those books um so it's it's really um looking at calvinism which uh, in this particular iteration in scotland people were um people believed they were either predestined to go to heaven or predestined to go to hell and there were a couple of things you could do throughout your life to try and you know um alter your luck but basically it was it was already decided and so it follows um a man a young man who called Robert Ringham who uh, knows that he's predestined to go to heaven and takes it upon himself to start killing people who he knows are predestined to go to hell um and while he's doing all of this there's another guy crops up called Gil Martin who kind of looks exactly like him and it's never quite explained what's going on with this doppelganger is this like like Jekyll and Hyde is this a um you know an aspect of his own psyche that's been turned into a person is it the devil um etc anyway it's like a psychological thriller uh really interesting and dark and fascinating so yeah I'd, I'd take that one to a desert island um, I'm gonna have to read that. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And the the first half of the book is kind of told by um, an editor who's kind of giving a kind of overview of the story. And the second half of the book is meant to be found documents and you know letters and notes and things from the protagonist. When, when did you say this was written? Uh, so it's published in 1824 anonymously. Wow. 
Okay. And um, it kind of, it really fell out of favor. It was only ever published, you know, one one edition in his lifetime, fell out of favor. And then kind of in the 20th century came came back into kind of contention as, as a great book that should be canonized. Mm. Um, it's really good. It's like dripping with just that, yeah, gothic kind of psychology and stuff and um i don't i don't know if you've been to um any of those if you've been to edinburgh before um i've been to edinburgh no right oh uh, so there, there's um there, there's a church kind of in the old part of edinburgh called gray friars kirk and um lots lots of kind of really old calvinist graves exist in there and they're kind of real scary by modern standards it's kind of you know, statues of decomposing bodies and skulls and, you know, dead things everywhere. And so that kind of Calvinist mentality of, you, you know, it's like Protestantism, Protestantism on, you know, steroids or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're going to die. You'll be kind of, you'll be mulched before long, you know, shape up and all the rest of it. So that, that book's infused with all of that, but also this kind of bonkers idea, really, that when you're born, you're already told, you know, you'll be going to heaven you won't be going to heaven so it just makes for this kind of crazy um society really which which is what this book explores amazing okay Um, book five i'd say uh, the man who loved children by christina stead um i really loved this novel I i wasn't expecting to kind of um i was reading it as essentially homework um so because of leaving school um with that any kind of studies really and then going to university I had this real I've always had this real deficit model of I need to read heaps of stuff just to try and catch up with this imagined person in my head that that, you know was reading the whole time and similarly when I've come to live in Australia I've thought what who's Patrick White etc so I've always had this kind of um, anxiety in a way to catch up to to try and get across uh, what's been written here and you know how that fits in with things and so I read The Man Who Loved Children thinking this will be a kind of, um, you know, pleasant story, basically, is what I was thinking. Um, but it kind of, um, yeah, it blew my mind because um, of, of what it does with families. So I'm really interested in families as microcosms, both as a, a writer and a reader. And, yeah, there's this dysfunctional family, the, the Pollitts in it. So um, husband, wife, and seven kids. Um, and it's a blended family. So there are children from the previous marriage of the dad. Um, the mum doesn't get on with one of the daughters. The, the dad um, is this kind of um, idealist, I guess you would call him. But um, he doesn't bring in any money um, to the house. So that the kids, everyone's living in poverty. And what I love about the book and feel I learned heaps from was you change allegiance as a reader the whole way through. So sometimes you think, oh, the, the dad is actually really nice. You know, he's a good he's a good guy. And then suddenly it'll be like the mum whose side you're on and vice versa. So it, it's just beautifully nuanced character um, writing. And um, of course, it was it was set in Sydney or thereabouts, you know, rural kind of New South Wales, I guess. Um, but then the publishers, American publishers, insisted it was transposed uh, to Washington, I think Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., yeah. which is a- an amazing example of how doing something that should wreck a book somehow didn't wreck it. Um, like, I, I don't I think it, 
would probably have been better if it was just set where it was meant to be set. I think it would, everything would have fit a lot better there. But even with that kind of, you know, um, recklessness around around how the book had to be presented, it's it stands up, which I think is an amazing testament to the book itself uh, and the author. Um, I would take uh, On My Island Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko. Um, I think, um, as I was saying earlier in our chat um, with Catch-22 and really most books that I write, uh, sorry, that, that I write, that I read and love, um, it's the balance of uh, quite dark and heavy themes with levity and humour. I'm really drawn to that. And this book completely has it. So, um, on the you know, give the story to a hundred writers, and you'd obviously have a hundred very different tales. But you know, the the kind of themes, I guess, are generational trauma. Um, you know, there's a sacred island. It's it's an indigenous family basically, and there's a sacred island that's under threat from developers. You know, there's a corrupt council, etc. So that. There, there's a lot of trauma there. I mean, in the real sense, generational trauma, indigenous trauma, just this idea of cultural load, you know, the, um, from the past and from the present, you know, that um, I guess um, I've heard and read about that, you know, indigenous people might wake up with on a daily basis, the sense of load. And um, that book absolutely talks about those things. It'll make you cry in the way that it writes about those things, but God, it's they're really funny as well. It's a funny, human, beautiful book, fast paced and a bit like the Scottish writing. I mean, this is an Australian book, but the Scott, that same kind of idea of, um, we're going to work really, really hard for everything that happens in this book. And in this case, I think it absolutely pays off. It's a, it's a brilliant book that I recommend to everybody as often as I can. Um, a kind of uh, a, a doorstopper would be my next book. So The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. Um, when I read Dostoevsky, um, which, you know, I haven't done for years, actually, but um, he's just one of those writers that takes me into a certain space that even when I stop reading, I start seeing the world differently. So whereas it might just be the postman going up the street on his bike, I imagine him falling under a horse and cart and his ribs being broken and having to run over to tell his wife that their children will, you know, grow up in poverty, but I'll help where I can kind of thing. So it's that everything's very, you know, uh, chaotic and uh, high stakes and shambolic, really, which is the, the kind of world of Dostoevsky. And uh, I just love it. Again, we're in the realm of a um, dysfunctional family, you know, the three brothers, their dads died, what's going to happen next, the family's a microcosm of society, religion, etc. Um, there's also a minor, well, well, I say minor character, there's a character in it called Kolya Krasotkin, who is a young boy, who um, is really kind of high-spirited and naughty. So he's he's 13, and the first time we see him, he lies down on some train tracks uh, to the kind of shock of all his friends and waits for this train steam train to go kind of over the top, and he just lies there with his back. Um, but he also, he, he reappears throughout the book, and he has the very last words in the novel too. He's, you know, it's something like, hurrah, Karamazov or something. But he's he's this kind of, um youthful hero of the book um and 
uh, I named, yeah, my first son's named after him. So my first son's oh. Kolya. So I, I can't really say much more, uh, yeah. much, much more how that book uh, <laughs> has affected me than I, I named it's my kid. a fairly good endorsement. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's actually there, there's children called Kolya in um, the Idiot as well, and mm. uh, Crime and Punishment. But yeah, I think this this particular one in the Brothers Karamazov is uh, wonderful. Wow. Um, the eighth book I would take would be um, The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro, which um, seems to me more controversial. Whenever I kind of mention that book to people, then it it should. I think uh, a lot of long-term casual kind of fans thought that was a bit of a misstep. Um, it's a book. Uh, I don't know if you've read that one, Ben. No, I haven't read it. I've like really. I'm. I don't think I've read any of his books. I've got a oh, few wow. on okay. my shelves, but I've. Yeah. But I know that book. Like a lot of people, didn't seem to like it very much. Yeah, it's a real, I guess, departure. But then, um, you know, it's set in a kind of King Arthur era world i guess where the main characters axel and beatrice are an elderly couple that live in a warren uh, literally a warren with other people there's just little uh, curtains between their their hovels really and um there's a memory sickness gone through the land where nobody can really remember anything so even something that happened last week basically everyone has a, a kind of ongoing amnesia sickness but at some point axel starts thinking i'm pretty sure we had a son didn't we have a son and beatrice will be like mm, i'm not really sure and so this whole book is really them setting out on foot as a you know elderly infirm couple through a land of you know dungeons and ogres and all the rest of it which is i think what people didn't like about the book they thought it was you know why are you, you're, you're not a fantasy writer why are you doing this kind of thing um but what I really love about it is the relationship between this couple, um, an elderly couple who are essentially off on a mythical saga uh, and everything we learn about them, uh, but also about marriage and time and memory and ultimately why maybe it's not the best idea to uh, remember, you know, may maybe sometimes forgetting is a kindness. Uh, so the book goes into all those areas. And yeah, I've, I've reread that one a few times. I, I love his other writing. You know, I really liked Clara and the Sun as well, his new one. But um, this is the one I take with me, I reckon. Um, <clears throat> Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, probably uncontroversial. Um, clearly uh, considered a good book by lots of people um, for, I, I guess, in a way, the, the same reasons as Dostoevsky for me. That or or the private confessions of a justified sinner, um, Bronte's writing in that book just takes me into a place where everything is coloured by it while while I'm reading it, but also afterwards, during, uh, and for weeks after reading it, I think um, it's kind of dark and uh, it's a little bit kind of yeah crazy, um, and um, you know just. The, the, the kind of love story but the very very dark love story and um the the kind of i don't know the kitchen the table the dirt the whole the whole world of that novel really talks to me um and it has something which i'm really fascinated by in books of that era this idea of the the kind of framing narrator um so the whole thing is you know the guy as you know a guy arrives in town to to Wuthering Heights that area um, and he ends up hearing this entire story of the book from a, a former maid in the house. 
And um, I think there are various reasons stories used to be written and told like that, but um, I really enjoy that. I, I like thinking about what are the gaps between what this person actually saw and what really happened and how reliable can we see this narrator as being. <clears throat> um, and the, the last book I would take um, on my desert island is Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, which um, is kind of uh, central to A Country of Eternal Light, my book. Um, the title of the book's taken from uh, a letter in Frankenstein. I've just got so many thoughts about Frankenstein that change every time I read it, but my main premise that um, is, is really informs, yeah, my, my book, A Country of Eternal Light, is that um, Frankenstein himself is a completely unreliable narrator, but that's not all. He's telling his entire story to a man called Robert Walton, who I also think is a completely unreliable unreli narrator. Um, so a bit, a bit like in Wuthering Heights, you have this idea that, you know, the action happened a long time ago, uh, and somebody told somebody something, who told it to someone else, who told it to someone else, on and on and on. And then eventually they told it to Frankenstein. And then Frankenstein somehow has, you know, taken a dog sled over the polar ice and ended up on a boat with a man called Robert Walton, who mm. has spent the first 10 letters in the book saying to his sister, if only there was a man I could talk to, I'd, I'd love that man, I'd love him, I'd, you know, I'd, you know, take him to my bosom and all the rest of it. So the, the only person that ever sees the monster supposedly uh, within the, the confines of the, the book and the, and the kind of present, if you like, is Robert Walton. And mm. he only gets a small glimpse of the monster at the point where Frankenstein is lying, you know, with coins in his eyes or whatever. His, his corpse is there on the boat. Frankenstein kind of jumps up onto the boat and is like, oh, you know, my creator, um, I'm now going to go and, go and uh, you know, burn myself. But... I don't think that's a very reliable account that he caught this glimpse in that moment, given the entire story. He's just been spun by Frankenstein. Um, so, and, and you know, there, there's different editions of the book too. So ideally on the desert island, I'd take the 1818 edition and then the reworked 1831 edition, which Mary Shelley reworked following Percy Shelley's death. Her husband drowned, mm -hmm. her kids had died by that stage. And, you know, the, the second version is slightly darker and more menacing, but I'd take them both so I could say uh, shuttle between them both um, as the, the tide lapped at the desert island. Wow, what a great note to finish on. Before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can get in touch with you online and where we can go and buy your really great book, Country of Eternal Light? So the most active place I am at the moment on social media is on Instagram, and that's at Narrative Friction. Um, and I post there about what I'm reading and what I'm doing, what I'm writing sometimes as well, um, and lots of cat pictures. Uh, but I'm also on Twitter, just at Paul Dalgarno, and least my least favorite platform, but I am on it, is Facebook. And again, that's just at Paul Dalgarno or some version of that, basically just my name. Brilliant. Paul, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you and congratulations on the book. It is really, it's a great read and I really enjoyed it. So highly recommended. And um, yeah, thanks so much for chatting with me. Thanks heaps, Ben. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.
Thanks once again to Paul Dalgano. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondTheZeroPod at gmail.com. Don't forget to support this podcast by heading over to Patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with your next episode next week.